Well, good morning. John chapter 4 is where we will spend our time together this morning. No doubt a familiar passage to us. Fourth chapter of John's gospel, we find these words. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, I have nothing, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty, or will, excuse me, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come to this well to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it comes to us. It convicts and it heals. Lord, I pray for my friends this morning. Lord, I pray that as we look at this text and we ask difficult questions of it and of ourself, Father, that you might be present in our midst. Help us and heal us. Lord, I thank you for our pastor. I thank you for the work that he is seeking to accomplish this morning a thousand miles away. Lord, would, would you bless him and give him a great harvest Thwart the evil one's attempt to distract and discourage him. And may the same God who will be honored and praised and lifted up this morning in this room be lifted up and honored in Tanzania as well and in churches across this city and community. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, it is... It is indeed good to be back with you. This has been just a wonderful weekend. Uh, Jennifer and I came in on Friday. Two of our dearest friends uh, from Vero Beach were getting married. And so I got to come in and be a part of the service. 
and spend time with them and and rekindle uh, friendships with folks that I haven't seen in a long time. And and this is a is a great way to cap uh, what has been an, an amazing time together. Uh, at that ceremony and the reception that followed you we did what what you tend to do when you see friends that you haven't seen for a while we sat around the table and we told old stories and and one of the stories that I had frankly not thought about in a long time was when uh, uh, Nicholas and his best man was a guy by the name of Davidson and these were two guys that worked for me when I was at uh, Youth for Christ and in here in Indian River uh, two young men loved the Lord uh, have spent countless hours uh, sharing the gospel with kids who don't know Jesus uh, in this community, uh, from from Sebastian to Oslo. And we took a group of kids to summer camp. This was probably five years ago. And at this camp, uh, Nicholas and Davidson are with me, and, and we're having a good time. And Nicholas uh, and I watched as Davidson, This uh, he was probably... 22, 23 at this time, is utterly smitten with the camp photographer. She was, she was older than he was, and frankly, she was, she was an attractive lady. And Davidson uh, comes back to Nick and I and says, uh, Davidson is Haitian, and so through, through a thick accent, he said, I, I think that I like the camp photographer. And of course, being his dear close friends that we were, quickly rolled our eyes and said, buddy, you have no chance. She is out of your league, pal. Just forget it. Save yourself the heartache, the heartbreak. And Davidson, who's, let's just say, quite confident uh, in his abilities, uh, says, well, I know I, I think I'm going to talk to her. Maybe she will give me her phone number. Go ahead, buddy. And so, you know, Nicholas and I cross our arms and just watch as he makes this fateful walk across the room to talk to the camp photographer named Katie. And even in my mind, as I'm watching this scene play out, I'm trying to think, okay, how can I encourage him? How can I comfort him when this this woman breaks his sweet little heart? And he walks over and he addresses her. And we're watching and we're watching, and we see Katie go, <laughs> you know, she giggles a little bit, and we're thinking, what, what is going on? What is happening here? And they talk for a little bit more, and two minutes turns to five, which turns to ten, which turns to an agreement to have dinner that evening in the cafeteria together. And fast forward, what I guess has been five years now, I see them married with their child dancing together last night at the Heritage Center in Vero Beach. Now, I, got to, I was at their wedding, too, and I had to eat a big pile of crow at the rehearsal dinner and shared that story again about how I had no confidence in Davidson's ability because he was so far out of his league with this woman. And, and I imagine, though I don't know, I wasn't there, but I imagine... That as the disciples returned from buying bread and they see Jesus addressing this woman of Samaria, the utter shock and amazement had to have been something similar when I saw Katie respond to Davidson. You could have knocked me over with a feather. 
And as they see this scene play out, as their rabbi is having this conversation, which was utterly taboo, as they watch this scene play out, I have to imagine that they were caught completely off guard. Now, one of the reasons I love this story, this is a, this is a familiar text. Most of us have heard it before at some time. Um, there's a couple of different ways that we could approach it. But maybe why I love this text so much is it's such a help for me. It's so encouraging to me because I think maybe as clear a picture here as in any of the Gospels, our Lord pulls back the curtain and gives us a glimpse of who he is and to whom he has come. And so as we walk through this, we'll move through this passage really in, in three stages. What I want us to consider for just a few moments this morning is I want us to consider the woman. I want us to think about the well and I want us to think about some wonderful news that Christ gives her and gives us. The woman. Well, there are at least three different reasons why this conversation should never have taken place. The first really is that she was a female. She was a woman. And, and in this time and in this culture, it was utterly taboo for a man to address a woman let alone a woman who was not married to this particular man. In fact, as I was reading and thinking and preparing some of the different, uh, through some of the different commentaries in this, it, it, was, it was quite common for a, a wife to not even address her husband in public. It, it, this, you know, our times are, are quite different in this regard. Uh, to do so, frankly, would have been considered flirting and would have been highly inappropriate. We'll come back to that in a minute. The second reason that it would have been quite strange for the disciples to see this interaction take place is because she was a Samaritan. And even as, as John records for us in the text, Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. You know, I don't know what the cultural association today would be whether it would be Muslim and, and Jew, whether it, would be, um, whether it would be along different socioeconomic lines, whether it would be ethnic lines, but whatever the divide that resonates with you, that this is the same scenario that's playing out. Jews and Samaritans didn't, exist, uh, didn't, didn't uh, coexist well. They tolerated at best. This goes all the way back to post-exilic times. There were great divisions along the lines of what the right forms of worship would be, about what the right places of worship would be. The Jews, frankly, considered Samaritans half-breeds who intermingled after the exile, polluting what they considered to be pure stock. It's, it's actually blatant racism. And so for Jesus to address this woman, who's not just any woman, but is a Samaritan woman, would have been utterly inconceivable. In fact, it's quite common for Jews not to travel through Samaria. 
They would make their way around Samaria. They would take the extra day's time to go around to avoid having any interaction at all. And yet, we're told in the passage that Christ must go through. So what we have in this scene is quite literally a divine appointment that the Lord had established. The scene that plays out is something that he intends to happen. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan woman, and she was a sinner. You know how we know that? I mean, we didn't read all the way through the passage. In fact, I I kind of stopped just short intentionally where we really get to the good stuff. But you don't have to read that far to know that she's a sinner. You know why? She's at the well and she's there with all her friends, isn't she? No. She's there alone. Not only is she there alone, she's there at noon. Uh, The ESV calls it the sixth hour. It's it's the heat of the day. Traditionally, the women from the village would gather in the morning and go walk out to the well, draw the water that would be needed and return home. And they would do this in a group. That's not what is taking place here in our scene. She's there. She's there alone and she's there at noon. She's intentionally she's either intentionally avoiding the crowd or she's not welcome. Of course, if you read through, you you can see why this woman is a sinner. She's a pariah. She's not welcome. And despite these things, Jesus engages her in conversation and offers her what she really needs, living water. We got a little time. Let me give you a side note on this. Something that I, as I was sitting with this passage and, and trying to allow it just to uh, filter into my life a little bit. You know, what, you know what strikes me as absolutely stunning from this passage? It's not just so much that Jesus engages this woman. Not just so much that his heart would be t- in tune to her as someone who is needy and broken. That's kind of who our Lord and Savior was. He's hardwired to love difficult cases. That, I find that fascinating. But you know what else I find fascinating? That as, it's not, it's not just, it's not just that he approached her, but it's how he approached her. Think about this. When Jesus comes to her, when he first engages this lady, he positions himself as a man who is in need. Jesus is the one, as he introduces himself to this woman, positions himself as a person who himself is in need. He comes to the well, he finds her at the well, and what? how does he address her? Woman, could you give me a drink? You have a need... Or I, excuse me, I have a need that you are able to meet. Now, our Lord is sovereign. Our Lord is omniscient, meaning that he knows all things. He knows where this conversation is going to end, and he knows how he's going to get there. But how does he introduce this evangelistic moment? He positions himself as a person who himself is in need. 
Now, I believe in this moment, Jesus is actually thirsty. In his humanity, he is thirsty. But as he draws near to this woman, who he knows thoroughly, intimately, in every conceivable way, he knows her. And in a moment, he's going to expose her for who she is. But before any of that happens, he positions himself in such a way that she will be receptive to the message that he brings to her. Now, this is so counterintuitive to the way that we so often approach evangelism. I, I know this because I've spent the last almost a decade of my life doing evangelism. And so often what we find in evangelism is we find a guy like me going to a people group who we feel is really in need. Let me come in and just solve your problems. Because I've got all the answers. And so often what I'm afraid happens when we think about evangelism in, the, in that kind of a way. We position ourselves. And I, friends, I, don't, I believe it's not intentional. I don't think any of us are thinking these things out loud as we do them. But we begin to offer answers to questions that people aren't asking because we don't take the time to listen to the questions that are being asked. And so I just think it's fascinating that Jesus positions himself as a, as a person who himself knows what it means to have a need. Now, the need that he has is relatively simple. It can be solved with a cup of cold water. But in doing so, he wins favor in an audience with this woman who frankly has a need far greater. See, I think a principle that, and this is not the main thrust of this passage. In fact, I, I, in my notes, it's just in brackets because I'm not even sure I was going to say it. But, but I think we have to get this to understand the gospel. See, friends, we can't love people that we feel superior to. You can't love people that you feel superior to. God, in his infinite mercy, and in his sovereign wisdom, has called you to faith. Praise God, you had nothing to do with it. You responded when the call came. Your faith is a gift given to you. And in turn, the call for us, for me, is to go and to love people. And in order to do that, we cannot begin to think or feel that we are somehow superior to these people. Jesus didn't think so. When he looked at this woman, he saw a woman who had a need and he had compassion on her need. I love that. All right. Side note over. For just a minute, let's think about what her need is. What is this woman's need? We know, what, we know what her problem was. We know what her sin was. She was an adulteress. She struggled with sexual sin. It's right there in the text. It's inescapable. She was loose. She slept around. What does he say? You're right to say you have no husbands. You've had five and the one you're with now is not your husband. We know what her sin was, but, but what was her problem? 
I've thought about this a lot too. And, and here's what I've come up with. Her problem is the same problem that I have. Her problem is the same problem that you have. She wanted to be happy. Don't you want to be happy? I want to be happy. But she thought she could find her happiness apart from God. We don't know much of her story. Only what's here in this in this text. But I imagine that at some point down the line, she recognized that she had a vacancy in her heart. There was an emptiness, a longingness, and she thought, because this was the predisposition of her own heart to struggle with sexual sin, she thought, oh, if, if only I had someone to love me. Oh, if, if only I had a man who could fulfill my desires, who would meet the needs that I have in my life. You know what? If I had that, then I would be happy. And you know what? She found that, and she was. She was happy. For a time. But, but what do we know about those types of happinesses? They're fleeting. They don't last. And so she said, well, then maybe a different guy. She moves on to the next. And the next and the next and the next. Until at one point, she wakes up one morning. The man she's with is not her husband. And she is a pariah and outcast and utterly alone. Now, I say this is the same problem that I have and the same problem that you have, not because I struggle with sexual sin. Praise God. That's not the thing that I struggle with. Maybe it is for you, but, but all of us have a predisposition in our heart called sin to attempt to find our happiness in something other than God. This is the sin of the garden. This is the temptation that the evil one whispers in our ear. That if only I had that, then I would be happy. Maybe for you it is a relationship. Maybe it's another zero in the bank account. Maybe it's the happiness of a child who has always struggled and floundered in life. If only they could get their act together, then... Maybe it's a struggling business. I don't know, friends, but what I do know is that the happiness that we seek to attain apart from Christ is fleeting and void of real power. That's why where they are meeting is so important. You see, this well is actually an important character in our narrative. Now, it doesn't really do anything. It's a well. It just kind of sits there, like wells do. But it has incredible significance. I've never been to the Holy Land. But, but from what I understand, this well is still in existence to this day. You could go there and see it. Uh, it sits... Uh, 
near Mount Gerizim on a piece of land that Jacob gave to his son. We read that uh, this morning. Clayton did for us in, in Genesis 29. Uh, it makes it about 4,000 years old, which means at the time that Jesus was there, it's, you know, it's, it's young. It's only about 2,000 years old at that point. It's been there for a really long time. And as Jesus meets this woman at this well, he's doing something very intentional. Very intentional. See, the patriarchs have a history with wells. Did you know that? The, the fathers have a history with wells. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll, you'll see it comes up again and again and again. Uh, Genesis 29, we find Jacob. And Jacob is where? He's at a well. And who does he meet at the well? Jacob meets Rachel. Think about Jacob's father, Isaac. Isaac eventually marries Rebekah. Where did, where did Isaac meet Rebekah? Do you remember the story? He meets her at a well. What about Moses and Zephorah? Where did Moses meet Zephorah? He met her at a well. See, I, you know, I don't guess they had eHarmony back then, you know, where you could dial it up, you know. Match.com didn't exist, you know, I guess in the late stone age, you know. <laughs> but it's common for, for at a well to be a meeting place. And in fact, in the patriarchal history, it is the place where the patriarchs would meet the woman that would become their bride. Now, fast forward 2,000 years. And where do we find Jesus? He is beside a well. And he meets a woman who would be a foreshadowing or a picture of who would become his bride. There is one major difference. You know what we know specifically about Rachel and Rebecca and Zephora? They were beautiful. They were stunning. In fact, Jacob himself, when he sees her, is overwhelmed at Rachel's beauty. In fact, her beauty was so stunning that her sister Leah, in comparison to her, was, we're specifically told, was not attractive. So he, he agrees to this absurd arrangement with Rachel's father that listen this woman is so fabulous so stunning I must have her I will work for you for seven years and and we're told that those seven years went by like that because of how attractive and desirous this woman must have been and of course you you may know that story wedding night comes uh oh it's not Rachel I've been duped it's Leah And so another seven years is added on, and he gladly does that. See, get this. Jacob had to be tricked into marrying Leah. But Jesus 
chose her. Do you understand that? Jacob had to be tricked into marrying Leah, but Jesus chose her. When Jesus meets a woman by the well 2,000 years later, the woman who would be a, a prefiguring of who the church would be, the one whom he would make his bride, she is not Rachel. She is not Rebecca. She is Leah. She is the one who is marred. She is the one who is stained. She is the one who is found guilty because of sin. She is the one who is an outcast, a pariah, one who would not be deemed acceptable. He chose her because it is a picture of who he has come to make his bride. Those of us, people like me, people like you, who come to him with our imperfections, with our unrighteousness. Why? So that he might make us righteous. He's doing something here. Very intentional. We have to push pause. We have to push pause in this moment and recalibrate our thinking. See, the temptation for us because we know the drill. We know what it's like to file in these doors, to find our place in these chairs, to worship Jesus. It's very, very easy. Wow. It's very easy for us to begin to, to be lulled into thinking that there is somehow a difference From people like us, as opposed to people out there. When really, friends, the only difference between those who have been brought into the kingdom is that at a particular point, and at a particular time and space, Jesus has saved us. We have surrendered to the call to faith. And our friends who are out there, have not yet done so. And our duty, the gift that God has given us, is to go forth with this message of hope and salvation. Jesus has uncovered her shame. You see it right there in verse 16. He has this puzzling discussion with her about living water. And he's, I promise you, if you read it the rest of the way through, he will clarify it. (laughs) But he uncovers her shame. He reveals to her that he knows her fully. And then he gives her some wonderful news. It's wonderful for her who heard it for the first time. And frankly, friends, it's wonderful for you and I if we hear it again. See, Jesus not only uncovers her sin, go call your husband. Can you imagine what must have happened in that moment? I, I don't know if you know what it's like when when the curtain comes down and you are exposed, you're found out. Maybe you maybe you were caught. Well, none of us lie, but sometimes we tell untruths, you know. 
Maybe, maybe you've been caught in an untruth. You're kind of called on the carpet and you're exposed. It is, it is an awful, awful experience. And here she is exposed. Now what is this man going to do? How is he going to deal with me? Will he treat me and abuse me as so many others have done before? Is this just another big setup? No. Look at what he does. See, he doesn't just say, go call your husband. He doesn't just expose her sin, but he invites her to come to him with the sin. Go call your husband and do what? Come here. Come to me. Come to me. Go, bring that secret shame. Bring that hidden idol. Bring that thing that you thought was buried deep and come to me. Because I can do something about it. See, Jesus is not repelled by her sin and brokenness. He invites her to bring that sin and brokenness to him. I don't know about you, but I can tell you that um, I came to Christ when I was in seventh grade. You know how I came to Christ? If you've been here for a long time, you've probably heard this story. I came to Christ at a camp in Brooksville, Florida. It's the middle of nowhere. It's out on the other side of the state because a guy named Mike Malone is a young, wild preacher from Orlando. Came and spent a week with 120 middle school and high school kids. I was in seventh grade, didn't know who this guy was from Adam. And as he talks about the life of David, I see reflected in the beauty of the cross my own sin and brokenness. And so your pastor actually led me to Christ when I was a snot-nosed little kid. <laughs> and began a friendship that's lasted for years and years. And part of what I heard in that message was that this Nobody of a kid from nowhere, Florida, could experience love and life and redemption. And friends, I don't know. I don't know. I know some of you. I don't know all of you. I don't know what you brought in these double doors, what secret sin, what hidden shame that you walked in here with. But because I've been at this for a while, I know it's something Whatever it is, however awful it is, can I say to you as warmly and as pastorally as I can muster, come to Christ with it. Bring it to him. Because he will do with it what he did for this woman. Go call your husband and come to me. See, the great beauty of the life with Christ is not that we have to muster our own righteousness, not that we have to prepare our own resume of righteousness, submit it to the Father, and hope and pray that it's enough to get us in. <laughs> it's that Christ Jesus has prepared a perfect resume of righteousness, submitted it to the Father on our behalf, and says, Come in, brother. Come in, sister. He has ushered us in. It's on his account that we find our righteousness. So we bring to him our failure and our shame. And he credits 
us with Christ's righteousness. And we are washed like rain. Well, a few things to think about as we close. As a church, it's vitally important, friends, that we think about how we view ourselves in the community that God has placed us in. One of the things that's so exciting about this church is, is where it's located. I mean, we're right here between Vero and Sebastian. Gifford just is, is right here. As a church, we need to begin to think about how God has called us to love and to serve and remember the way that Christ himself positioned him as he sought to love and care for this woman who he recognized as broken and needy. See, we enter into the kingdom through grace. And so it is with grace that we have to extend the offer of salvation to others. We have to operate out of that position. You know, that's on a corporate note. That's on a, that's on a community note. But what about us? What about personally? Let me ask you this. And again, I, you know, I'm not picking a fight. I'm not. I can say this because I frankly don't know. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. I don't know what you're struggling with. So I can just say it. What, what are you trusting as your righteousness? What are you hoping is going to be that merit, that gold star that the Father looks at and gives you his seal of approval? Because if it's anything other than trusting in the, the righteous works of Christ himself, friends, it ain't enough. It's only through Christ and his merits that we find our righteousness. It's not having the right answers. It's not being a good person. It's trust in Christ. So as much as I'm able, friends, I want to encourage and exhort you to do just that. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you held my voice out. Uh, Thank you for these words. Thank you for the way that you're only the scriptures that I'm aware of are able to cut us so deeply and yet heal that wound with the mercy of King Jesus. Father, you are good. Forgive us, Lord, for trusting in other things as our as our righteousness when really the greatest gift of righteousness ever known to mankind has been offered as a free gift. Father, if there are friends in this room who have not yet trusted you, Lord, I pray that this would be the day of salvation, that they would find an elder, that they would find a friend that they know is following you, and that they might ask the key question of what must I do to have eternal life? Lord, thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.